internet friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life in that order. And Andy, did you pronounce it opinionated? I hope not. I'm not doing this the third time. Anemone. Anemone. I don't know. I can never do the Finding Nemo reference correctly. So precious. So cute opinionated podcast for opinionated oh god people. don't oh no 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 you just sound like a dude doing a bad tim curry impression at that point i'll take a bad tim curry impression <laughs> no do it i mean i tim curry is one of those voices that i cannot do an impression i i fancy myself an okay impressionist i cannot do a tim curry voices i cannot do uh tim curry most south african accents <laughs> And the lead singer from The Offspring. For whatever reason, those are three tones that I just can't bend my voice into to even even resemble a little bit. I don't know what it I is. I think you have to be, like, born in California to even have a shot of doing the, uh, the dude from Offspring. That's such, a, that's such a SoCal bra twang. I don't know if I've ever tried Twang. to do a Tim Curry impersonation, except through, like, Dr. Frankenfurter. And they're different in my brain for some reason. How so? Well, because, like, I think about Tim Curry's voice acting work, mostly his Nickelodeon stuff, his Nigel Thornberry, um, his, oh, his, yeah. his Jimmy Neutron days. Mm-hmm. And Wasn't he a villain in, like, the Mighty Ducks cartoon? Yes, yes, he was. I feel like that was a thing. He, yeah, okay. And for some reason, that's different than, how'd you do I? See, so you've met my... Different voices to me. I don't know. I know it's the same person. It, different parts of their lives, but different to me. I was gonna say, those are separated by, what, close to 20 years' time? Yeah. Like, I, I will say, like, the first... This, this is going to be a real weird reference after we just talked about Tim Curry for, like, three minutes. <laughs> but the first uh, NWA album, Dr. Dre has, like, no, when I think of Dr. Dre rapping, I think of that, like, like, that really deep, yo, what up, Detroit, like, kind of voice. That first NWA album, Straight Outta Compton, he's, like, way up here. Like, he's <laughs> he's got such a high voice. Like... It's not, I'm exaggerating, but it's so much higher. Like, if he hadn't spent the next 30 years of his career basically doing one of these, uh, I would never notice it. But his voice is so much higher on that first album, and it is so jarring because I can't pick him out that well. Yeah. So, I don't know. 20 years' time will do something to some people's voices, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. But... Your your Tim Curry is better than I'm not even gonna attempt it. Like I, I it's that's not that's not a thing I can do. Well, yeah, like so. that's my point. The only Tim Curry I even try to do is Doctor Frankenfurter. That's fair. I mean, that's although I guess if you do um, like not long after, you could do uh, the impressions from Clue. Like I feel like that's a very similar kind of sardonic register. Right. God, I need to rewatch Clue. <laughs> I'm I'm I am signing. Okay, have you watched Bandersnatch yet? Everyone, everyone, we're we're recording this in December when Bandersnatch is still a thing. We're in January, my friend. Oh yes, no, sorry, we're in January. It's 2019. No, I uh, I haven't seen Bandersnatch yet. The the meme movie that I have checked out is Bird Box. 
not interested at all. But um, but Bandersnatch, okay, so are you familiar? It's like Choose Your Own Adventure movie. Right. So I want them to remake Clue with this. Someone put that idea out online, and I'm like, I support this 100%. I want a Clue remake in this, like, you decide to, like, I don't know, have the group follow into a certain room or get a certain clue and you hazard a guess. I don't know. I really think that that would be the best use of this technology. Sure. If you're, if you're going to remake anything, uh, clue and doing it with Bandersnatch technological rules is a great way to go about it. That's that, that is something I support a hundred percent. I think it'd be interesting cause you could really get into a different kind of storytelling. There's a play that I, I, I cannot remember the name. I will never remember it cause I wasn't in it and I was only ever shown the script, but the whole point and shtick of the play was it like, it would take place in a house in multiple rooms and the audience would be toured through the house and no matter what room you went in what order, like, it didn't need to be a continuous circuit. You could explore the house on your own pace, and each scene would play out, and you would get a different part of the puzzle that was the story. So I'd be really interested. Yeah. I've heard of this. I've, yeah, okay. I mean, Netflix. Uh, steal this idea. <laughs> Do it. We... I know you're hemorrhaging money. Uh, I know that you're borrowing significantly more than you're actually pulling in and you refuse to release your numbers and all your profits come from selling our choices. And this technology is probably used to learn new things about us that we that you can then sell to people. But please, as we established on a previous episode, I don't pay for Netflix. They don't actually have my real information. So... <laughs> So, so to the dear friends of ours to, who, who do pay for uh, our Netflix, sorry, but y'all are going to get a lot of weird ads for Cheapest Weddings <laughs> and various other Australian reality shows. Conversely, consolidate, you idiots. Just let Disney buy you. <laughs> <laughs> that's bad. Oh, that's, that's not a good choice at all. That's... I'm not, I'm still a little uncomfortable about the 20th Century Fox deal. Like, yes, I'm excited that the Fantastic Four are going to be done right, and the X-Men are going to be in the MCU, but there's a lot of other things that I'm real nervous sure. about. Maybe that'll be a... That, that, that'll, that'll be uh I don't even know if I could call that a love or a hate, because I do love a lot of the things Disney does. I just kind of hate Disney. Right. As an... And, like... It's like, I like what you do, but I... It's like if someone was, like, really philanthropic, like, they did a lot of nice things, but they were a rude asshole all the time. It's like, yo, I really love that you do such and such wonderful things for the world. It's like Bill Gates. (laughs) Bill Gates has donated so much of his fortune, done so much wonderful work in the world. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is fantastic. I applied for their scholarship when I was in college. Didn't get it, but I'm not mad at them. You don't become a billionaire without ruining some lives. So I'm kind of like, Bill Gates, you're probably kind of an asshole. Like, so I'm glad you did good things, but you're kind of an asshole. Disney, I'm glad you make some good movies. You're kind of monstrous. (laughs) So. That would be an interesting, um, taking, taking one topic and saying what we love about it and then what we hate about it. 
Like, I often wonder how many people think that that's what this show is before we actually get into the real format. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Interesting. Okay. I mean, maybe maybe we can, maybe that can be a recurring sub segment if we ever have complicated loves. Yeah, I think so. Or complicated hates. The best kind. No, that works. Uh, speaking of our format, um, you ready to get started? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so love-hate relationship. Uh, we are, eh, what, like eight, nine minutes in now. That was our that was our nice little you know buffer for anyone who's a complete dick and we don't want listening to the podcast. And that's me just pretending that any of this was deliberate. Our podcast format is simple. After we you know blather about for a few minutes, uh, we get into our topics. Andy and I take turns. We start off talking about one topic that one of us loves. Then we switch over to a top, another topic that one of us hates. And then we end on a relationship question, wherein we take a question from you, our beautiful, stunning, brilliant audience. Probably all have, you know, really, really great credit scores and awesome hair and gorgeous eyes. And we try and help you with whatever relationship issues you're having. So, Andy, I think it's my turn for the love. That's right, man. What do you love today? Uh, rhetorical question, because I sent you notes. So, my topic for today, Andy, is the bass guitar. And I'm going to open this... I'm, I normally open these with, you know, asking you what your thoughts are on a particular topic, and this will be no exception. But I want to get a little bit of foundation with you and me uh, squared in first. So, Andy, I know that you have... You, ha you definitely have musical knowledge. I know this for a fact. I know you're a singer... I know you have some amount of formal training. Uh, at the very least, you and I have both been in musical productions, and you seem to at least somewhat understand what sight reading and sheet music involved. <laughs> I think you have a little experience with guitar. Correct me if I'm wrong. I will correct you if you're wrong. Um, the closest thing I have to any formal guitar training is... Um, my senior year, the summer of my senior year, I was cast as Roger in Rent and tried to at least know enough about the guitar so that my fingers were on the right parts of the guitar when I was playing it on stage. <laughs> That's about all I actually have when it, term, uh, when it comes to actual guitar training. Interesting. Okay, I for some reason thought that you knew... I saw you in that production of Rent. It was delightful. But... I'm sorry, I thought that you... I, I think I assumed that you probably had more, maybe because you did a pretty decent job at faking it while playing <laughs> Roger and Rent. Um, so, well done there. Um, how about your... Do you have any background with music theory or anything along those lines? Um, purely amateur-based. I don't know if I have enough knowledge that I would be, feel comfortable discussing it with anyone who actually knew what they were talking about. I will tell you, maybe this is where you got confused. I played the drums. Um, oh, okay. To the point where I, I had a drum set in my living room, and it, it wasn't like band or anything. It wasn't even like garage band or anything, but like that was the instrument that I really tried to go ahead and learn. And, you know, a uh, fun little thing that I was thinking about... As I was mulling over these notes, I got to the point where I could play Rebel Rebel, your favorite David Bowie song, on the drums, because it's actually okay. incredibly easy. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Isn't it just like base? Isn't that just base snare and a couple of symbols? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So maybe I, that. Why? Why didn't we start a band? Like you as a drummer. We didn't anyway. have the follow through. We do now. <laughs> oh, that's oh god okay so i asked this just to get an idea of i find that people's attitudes about the bass guitar seem to vary a lot not 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 too much but to a to a good degree based on how much um background they have in music uh, and, I, and i'll get into that in a moment but uh with that understood uh andy you have played the drums uh you have very little formal training, it, it turns out, but enough that you can fake with a guitar. So I want to ask you what bass guitar, and specifically the people who play bass guitar, what exactly that conjures for you when you think of that? Um, maybe your favorite bassist or bass lines, or if you just think bass guitar seems like a lame-ass instrument. Like, I, I want to know your thoughts about bass guitar moving into this conversation. Sure. So, so stick with me here, everybody. The first thing I think about with a bass guitar, back when I was a kid, I was a huge fan of, like, Sunday paper comics. Like, comic strips. Where the hell is this going? Yeah, stick with me. (laughs) There was one in particular called Zitz. And Zitz was about, like, uh, a mom, a dad, and their teenage son. and, And all the jokes and stuff was about how the son is a teenager and he does stereotypical teenage things. Um, mm-hmm. and the teenager, the, the main dude was part of a garage band. And for some reason, like I, I had like one of those giant coffee table books of Zitz comic strips that was given to me by my grandma or something. And as like a weird special feature, there were bios of all the characters, which included the members of the punk band who were his friends. And when it got to the bass guitarist of this teenage garage band, it said he chose the bass because he looked at it and thought it would be easier than guitar. He was wrong. <laughs> and that's the first thing that I think about in relation to the bass guitar and bass guitar players. This concept that you look at it and you look at it, it has four big strings instead of six to eight to 12 smaller strings. Oh, that must be easier. When in actuality, like the bass guitar player has a job entirely different than the guitar player and has more in common with the drummer in terms of maintaining beat and and keeping the song structured and flowing in that way. So that's what I think about when I think about the bass guitar. I think about that comic strip and I think about like this notion that the bassist is more important but less sexy than the guitar player or at least that that's the stereotype okay i i actually love that that was a great answer i'm really glad that i just kind of sent you notes and said hey i'm gonna ask you about this give me whatever answer comes to you (laughs) because that was lovely and delightful and thank you for that story and i also read zits uh in the sunday comic strips and i thought that it was less interesting than garfield which says something about our taste. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have any regrets? Garfield, maybe. It's all right. 
Um, no, that's great. So, with that in mind, you're actually you actually touched on something that I'm going to dive into as we get into this conversation. So, little background: when I talk about bass guitar, I am specifically talking about the fretted electric bass guitar, which should be distinguished from its longtime predecessor, the fretless stand-up double bass. If you're ever watching, you know, a movie from the 1920s and there's like they go into a seedy jazz club and there's just like some dude smoking and there's just a dude with a snare drum and a bass drum and another dude with just a stand-up bass that's the fretless double bass uh which is what people by and large played for this uh for ever before the uh actual invention of the electric bass guitar now the earliest electric basses were invented in the 1930s by a Seattle musician named Paul Tutmark, who modeled it unsuccessfully as the Model 736 Bass Fiddle. <laughs> and that is funny as hell. Yeah. <laughs> he called it a bass fiddle. Like it, and it was, it was exactly what it's supposed to be. It's, you play it horizontally, you hold it like a guitar, but he called it a fiddle. Needless to say, the bass fiddle did not take off, and it wasn't until the 1950s when uh, Leo Fender and George Fullerton developed the Fender Precision Bass in October of 1951, which to the layman is kind of like the default bass. Like, it is very much an industry standard. I'm not, I'm not going to call it, like, the best bass there is, but it's very much like this is your... And I'm not trying to pun here. This is your baseline bass guitar instrument. I hate myself a little bit for saying that. Oh, I love you for that. <laughs> oh... But, um, but yeah, that's kind of been the definitive, like most of you who are picturing a bass guitar, like the thing you're picturing is probably a Fender P bass, a precision bass. Uh, Uh, so I I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I've, I've got a question if you can give an answer. I'm, I'm really curious. So you say that the bass was invented in the 1930s and that really surprises me. And I guess it's because when I think of the 1930s, I don't think of a guy in Seattle, I think of that one Hooverville suburb of New York that is the Great Depression in my mind, but what do do you know how the original bass was different? Like, the fact that it was electric at all really surprises Mm -hmm. me, and I just, I'm curious, do you know if it was some, like, giant monstrosity, or... So, the... It actually was not. If I were to show you, like, if anyone out there wants to Google, you know, the 736 bass fiddle, it honestly just kind of looks like an ugly bass guitar. Like, it's, it's, it's small enough that you can actually, like, sit it in your lap. I think you could probably stand up with it the same way you could a guitar or a bass guitar. But it was, it's bigger, it's heavier, it's smaller than a double bass. You, like you've pictured it, you've seen a double bass in real life, yeah. like or you've picked, you've seen it in movies. Like it's the size of a person. The bass fiddle is, eh, like it's not. I'm even looking at it up right now. Like there, I just googled it just for fun, just to grab an image, and it just looks like a really ugly bass. Honestly, sure. I'm looking at it now, and yeah, I can see what you mean. I mean, it. <laughs> The picture I'm looking at, it looks like something Elvis Costello would have played if he was a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, so so in the 50s, Fender comes out with the precision bass, 
And different other companies start coming out with other ones, including the, the one that I always think of as like the old fashioned bass, even though this did come out several years after the Fender P bass, is the Honer violin bass, which is what Paul McCartney's always playing in, you know, all the Beatles videos. Okay. Because he loved this violin. And when I say violin bass, it basically looks like an. A, uh, an inflated violin body and then a full bass neck so it's kind of comparatively smaller at least compared to a p bass uh and compared to most basses I, i've played i've played a, a violin bass just in like a store fucking around and they're fun they're surprisingly smaller and more compact and that doesn't surprise me because paul mccartney was a guitarist more than he was a bassist like the biggest reason he the reason Paul McCartney played bass in the Beatles was because George Harrison was a better guitar player than either Lennon or McCartney. So they were like, you have to play lead. You just have to. You're the best one. And between uh, Paul and John, John was too stupid to play bass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, John, like, John learned to play guitar from his mother who was actually a banjoist. So even she was like, I kind of know how guitar works. Uh, I can show you, um, but I mostly play banjo. So he like half knew, and then he just worked really hard on it, uh, which is good. That's that's a good thing. He worked really, really hard to learn with what little bit of training and knowledge he could come up with. But he didn't understand how bass guitars worked. He didn't get them. He had no idea about the theory behind them. Whereas Paul McCartney... Bass was, like, the 16th instrument he picked up. Like, he just, he was just a mute. Like, Paul McCartney's first instrument was a trumpet. He played so many instruments at a very young age. And, you know, he liked guitar the best, but he was sitting here going, like, okay, Stuart Sutcliffe has left the band. I guess I'll play bass. Like, it's fine. I, as long as I don't have to go back to playing drums like I did before we hired Pete Best, <laughs> I'm good with that. Because he he originally drummed for them before they found Pete Best because Paul was the only one who knew how to play drums. Because George is a guitarist and John Lennon is an idiot. So... <laughs> uh, I can't... Okay, we're... I feel like you're... Why do you laugh so hard at me insulting John Lennon? Because I love it. I love it so much. And, <laughs> like, this isn't the time or place to get into this, but I... I have very little knowledge or hard strong opinions about the Beatles as a whole I was too busy listening to Bowie and to hear you shit talk John Lennon who I know to be one of the most divisive and beloved musical people of the past century just uh, oh i just love it i love you man <laughs> <laughs> uh anytime if we ever want to have like a complicated love or complex like complicated love i i could easily talk about john lennon um so getting back on topic uh yeah so into the 50s and 60s uh as kind of these amplified three and four piece uh rock outfits became more popular you know, before before the advent of amplification in guitars or basses, you know, it was big band. Yeah. Guitar and bass were just, you know, two instruments among an entire orchestra. 
and you couldn't really hear them. Uh, when amplification became a factor, you know, that's when guitar became a lead instrument. When amplification became a factor, bass could become a bigger deal, and you didn't need, you know, you didn't need bass saxophone and tubas to fill out the low end of your orchestra. A bass guitar could handle it well enough. So by the 1960s, you know, the stand-up bass, the, the double bass was more or less forgotten, at least in pop music. And the convenience of the bass, of the electric bass guitar kind of took over. It was also much more portable. You know, you can just like throw it in a case that's slightly larger than a guitar case and carry it with one hand. Whereas, you know, a double bass is fucking huge. And, and you know, it just, it was way more convenient in general the technology kept advancing, and, and it's pretty much been this way ever since. Like, you don't really have bands that don't have bass parts or bass guitars. Now, the the thing that I kind of want to get into is, and, and you touched on this a little bit with your with your Zitz intro, is despite the fact that bass is an essential instrument whether you're playing blues, jazz, country, western, and even symphonic music. Like, classical symphonic composers are now writing bass, bass guitar parts. Um, it uh, gets a surprising amount of disrespect from a lot of people. It gets treated as the quote-unquote easy instrument in a lot of genres because, at least superficially, it looks like a guitar. It's tuned similarly, or it's tuned in the same way as a guitar. Um... The bottom four end uh, strings of a guitar are tuned exactly the same way as a bass, just uh, an octave lower. Yeah. And a lot of genres, some some styles and genres, particularly rock, metal, and punk, will regularly, although by no means always, they'll just kind of have the bass double whatever the guitar part is. Like if you've got if you've got a guitarist who is doing a particular kind of riff very normally it's not unusual for the bass line to just be copying that riff an octave lower and this frustrates me a lot because uh i personally have a deep attachment to the bass in most of the bands that i've ever been in i i have played bass despite and guitar is my main instrument i don't want to pretend it's not like i'm a guitarist i was a guitarist first I play my guitars more than I play anything else, and it is my favorite instrument. But uh, every band I've ever been in, there were always better guitarists than me. And uh, I was also the only one who usually owned a bass. So I kind of, I kind of, I just realized I kind of pull a Paul, Paul McCartney there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was the only one who owned a bass, knew how to play a bass. Uh, so even though I'm, I'm a guitarist first, I would normally end up playing bass. And it's an incredibly fun, versatile instrument. Its similarities to the guitar and it being the easier instrument are true in so much as when you're first learning it. Like, superficially, yeah. I mean, it's it, if you're just copying guitar parts, yeah, it, it is the easier instrument. But to get good at it, to be good at it, to sound good with it, and to play it well is way more complicated than anyone gives it credit for. And way more difficult. And yet still in, like... Even among some musicians I know, like there, there are people who treat the bass as this just 
kind of meh instrument that's just kind of there for the purpose of not making the guitar sound too shrill so that you, so that you can have a bottom out part and that pisses me off sure because it's a great instrument on its own and i love playing my bass and there are so many incredible bassists who are so essential to the sound of the bands that they're in and people don't give them credit like the the, the two genres i know that consistently give bassists their proper due are jazz and hip-hop and even then like Hip-hop doesn't give instrumentalists their due. They don't give drummers their due a lot of the time, partly because it's so sample-based, but, like, what the hell, man? Why, why do bassists get such a shit rap? It's such a great instrument. So that's that's my background with it, um, and that's as far as my notes go, but I just kind of wanted to talk to you a lot about that topic. Sure. Um, yeah, and, and I don't know. I love the bass. And it's really difficult instrument to make sound fantastic, like, you can sound soft. It's kind of, interestingly, it's kind of like drums, you know? A good drummer, like, you can be decent with a good sense of timing and knowing, you know, uh, a dozen or so backbeats right. patterns. But you're not great unless you get a lot deeper into it. And bass is very similar. Yeah, I think it all goes back to the, what I what I said in the open the is it is it sexy a bass solo or a a really funky intense bass line is fantastic and is awesome a drum solo is when it's well done awesome and and mind shattering but you don't get those as frequently as you get a a face shredding guitar solo and i mean maybe it's you kind of opened up something maybe it has to do with the people that take the instruments maybe it has to do with the 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 kind of person who winds up playing the bass and maybe I mean, we just had two instances with you and Paul McCartney, um, is the person who takes on playing the bass because somebody else already knows the guitar, but nobody else already knows the bass. On the bass, Derek Smalls, he wrote this. You know, I don't, I don't know about enough about the statistics of it all, but I, I think it's definitely interesting if for no other reason, like, 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 who do you want to bang in the band? Everyone wants. To, everyone wants to bang the lead singer, and then the next guy everyone wants to bang is the lead guitarist. Yeah, and then after that, uh... I mean, yeah, whoever's whoever's left probably goes over to the rhythm guitar guy or the bass player, the the drummer you know, probably find somebody and then the keyboardist finds a bunch of guys willing to play D and D with him. <laughs> Is that the keyboardist or the keytarist? Either. Either in this case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's terrible. Uh, I have no respect for the keytar as an instrument. But no, you make a point. Um and, and now it's funny because the ex- the exceptions to bassists who get respect always seem interesting to me. Because a lot of the time, they're the bassist who's also a singer. I'm thinking of Getty Lee. Right. Um, Lemmy. I'm thinking uh, Lemmy. Although Lemmy started out as a guitarist 
And funny enough, he started playing bass because uh, there was a guy in like that London rock scene who was a bassist and was a complete dick and left his bass in the back of a car. And he's like, he just had it sitting there like, somebody please come steal my rig. So I stole <laughs> his rig. <laughs> and that's hilarious. But, but weirdly enough, um, Lemmy played bass a lot like a guitarist. Like he fretted mm. power chords the way uh, like a rock, a hard rock guitarist might. Okay. So I, I don't know how much actual tra- he is. Actually, I think one of the bassists who kind of just copies what the guitar part does. I think. Yeah, but I mean, I think of other Phil Linnet from Thin Lizzy. Like people will look at Phil Linnet and. Phil Linnet got laid. Like, there's no way Phil Linnet did not get laid. But he was the <laughs> singer. He was absolutely the singer. The only times I ever see bassists get any, like, real respect is when they're also, if they're if they're not the lead singer, is when they're, and, and this is a weird thing, is when they're, they're primary songwriter. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, Geezer Butler wrote most of the lyrics for Black Sabbath. Basically, like, Iomi would do guitar lines, Geezer would write lyrics, Ozzy would sometimes help with the writing of the lyrics. Yeah. But, like, Geezer Butler was instrumental. That I think of, um, why am I blanking on the name? Fallout Boy. Oh, Pete Wentz. Pete Wentz. Why did I forget that name? That's ridiculous. Am I more than you for yet? Pete Wentz uh, wrote almost all of the lyrics for... Fallout Boy, possibly all of the lyrics, and a lot of, and, and came up with a lot of the chord changes and music along with Patrick Stump. Like, they kind of co-wrote a lot, but, like, Pete Wentz was, Pete Wentz gets a lot of, you know, centralizing there, and he was a bassist. Like, yeah. it's, it's very strange to me, the exceptions, because it, it does tend to be the songwriters or the lead singers, but if someone's just the, quote-unquote, just the bassist, I don't know. They seem so easily forgotten, and it bugs me. And I don't know what to do about that. But I wanted to take this moment to center the bass guitar because it is one of my favorite instruments. Uh, it is my next to the guitar. Uh, it is my second favorite instrument to play, and I enjoy it thoroughly. And I think that nobody gives it enough credit. Like. The jazz people, the hip-hop people, and the funk people give it credit, and nobody else does, and that pisses me off. And everybody out there, bass is awesome. Please, like, don't tune it out. Care about it. It's a fantastic instrument, and if you don't have it, you feel the difference. We, we, talked, on the, we talked on the Doors episode about how they straight up, even though they didn't have a bassist, like their live shows, they had a keyboard bass. They would hire studio bassists to come in for all of their recordings because the bass guitar is essential to this kind of sound and this kind of music. And without it, you have no groove. Your rhythm section feels sloppy. There's no bridge between the drums and the guitar parts. The melodies are off. It's just, it does so much and it gets so little respect. Yeah. So. It's the unsung hero of, of the band in a lot of ways. And I, I, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. So, that is my love for the for this particular episode is the bass guitar. Awesome, man. Well, so this I, I feel like I feel like this lends itself. Do you just real quickly? We I think we got the time. Do you want to do a goat goat bassist? <laughs> uh, greatest of all time bassists. Ooh, that is 
hard. So I am going to... This might change. Um, and this might just be partly because I'm thinking a lot about him because I saw Bohemian Rhapsody recently. Mm, but I'm going to okay. say John... I'm going to say John Deacon of Queen. Sure, 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 sure. For a very particular reason. John Deacon wrote a ton of the best Queen songs. Like, he wrote Another One Bites the Dust. He wrote uh, I Want to Break Free. He wrote he wrote the song that Stephanie and I recessed to at our wedding, which is You're My Best Friend. Aww. Like, he was an incredible songwriter. He was a really technically brilliant basses. Like, he could yeah. play... The thing about Queen is they could play so many genres, and he had so so much comfort. He could play the rockability, the rockability of a crazy little thing called Love, but he could also play, you know, the hard rock stuff. He could play the disco-y stuff. He could play all manner of things. Yeah, I think, at least right now, I'm going to argue John Deacon. Okay. I think that's a great answer. Um, it's not mine. I was going to go ahead, and you mentioned him already. I think the greatest bassist of all time is Getty Lee. And You know, I, I ain't mad about that. Yeah, yeah. My reasoning is, like, Rush is a triumvirate of, triumvirate of excellence on their own. And mm-hmm. we will talk about them at some later date. But, like, Getty was, again the lead singer of Rush as well as mm-hmm. the bass player. And not like not only was he the bass player and the lead singer, but he was a good bass player. And if you need anything to back that up, just look at YYZ and the dueling solos between guitar, bass and drums. Like that's some complex, awesome stuff. So yeah, I say Getty Lee. How dare you fail to recognize my greatest accomplishment to date? What, you finally nailed YYZ? It's Zed, and no, Neil Peart stands alone. Okay, I'm down with that. Um, Alex Lifeson is one of my favorite guitarists. (laughs) I'm never going to argue anything when it comes to Rush, but all right. Very good, my man. Well, thank okay. you. That uh, that that picked up my spirits before uh, I'm I'm gonna torpedo them way back down to uh, talk about our hate today. Okay, I am down. <laughs> so my hate um, is something that affects me, affects you. It probably affects ninety nine percent of our listener base. You've read the title. You know that today I want to talk about why I hate student loan debt. And it's for more than, I think, the stereotypical reason of, I don't want to owe money. Oh, so near to my heart. Uh, <laughs> okay, please continue. Well, so uh, just, as I pour a drink. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, I can talk about the uh, history of student loans, but I don't know if that really lends itself to what I really want to talk about for, for the sake of knowledge, student loans weren't a thing until 1958. I found out Mm -hmm. and, you know, think about that's 70 years ago, not 70, 60 years ago at this point and Mm -hmm. inflation rates and this idea that college, I think college was a different thing in 1958 than it is in 2019. Sure. And the idea that, like, first of all, it took, it, it is, colleges have been around since the Roman days, so it's interesting that it took so long for 
the idea of we will give you money to go to college is an interesting thing in itself. But I would like to go ahead and throw some scary numbers at you now. Okay. In regards to a study was taken in 2016. So, you know, 58 years after student loan debt became a thing. And here is where we are at as a nation in terms of our student loan debt. The total student loan debt in America is $1.52 trillion. There are an average 44.2 million people owing student loan debt to the government or whoever. The total increase of student loan debt in the most recent quarter was $29 billion. And specifically, if you look at, I'm looking at something called the FRED study, and it quantifies student loan debt. Since 2006, the student loan, the national student loan debt number has raised from $480 billion in 2006 to $1,490 billion in 2017. So that's over a trillion. That, that in 10 years, it raised $1,000 billion. Alex, I've never had to use the words $1,000 billion in my life before. That's because it's a trillion, Andrew. <laughs> A thousand billion is a trillion. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Good point. <laughs> You're going to have to pay me one hundred billion dollars. Oh, gentlemen, silence. Wow. Okay, so, so yeah, it's raised a trillion dollars. I mean, and, and really, here's, here, here's where I start wanting to get into what I want to talk about, why I hate student loan debt. It is... It's it's very quickly in economic circles and to anyone who does even a little bit of research, people are pegging student loan debt as the next major financial crisis. You know, think back to 2008 and we had the housing bubble burst and we had what people were calling the worst like economic downslide since the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And this is looking like it's going to be just as big of a bubble. You know, I owe, I owe student loan debt. You owe student loan debt. I don't want to get into measuring that, but we can both say that our friend Nathan, who got both his degrees at Full Sail, which is one of the most expensive private colleges out there, um, has a shit ton more student loan debt. Everybody I know who went to college be it a four-year state university or private school, whether you're talking about just getting a bachelor's or, in your case, getting a bachelor's and a master's. I don't know Mm -hmm. anybody who doesn't owe student loan debt. And I think that shows why it's it's, it's a widespread thing. It's becoming a widespread problem. Yeah. I mean, okay, so I look at this... All right, you tell me that student, like, okay, I did not know until this this episode the tidbit about how recently student loans became a thing, that they came about in the 50s. I can't say that I'm surprised, but the thing of it is, so when I think of the 1950s in my head, that is, you know, that's the post-war boom. 
Baby boomers are born. We have a population explosion in the U.S. We have a financial explosion. Like the the middle class really becomes a thing in the 1950s. Yeah. A lot of that is thanks to the GI Bill. So people come back from people came back from the war, and the government basically goes, "Okay, you fought in the war. We'll pay for your college. We will. You know, this is this is this is a thing that we are doing. We are investing." in college educations for pretty much the almost the totality of the young male white American. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so so you have this giant economic boom. The workforce has increased, professionalism has increased. Before that, college was something rich kids did. You didn't go to college unless you either came from enough money to pay for it outright. Granted, college was less expensive, but it doesn't change the fact that most people didn't have just money. playing graduated. Yeah, they graduated high school and they got a job. If they were lucky, they could maybe afford some trade schools. If they were savvy and maybe had a little support in other ways, they could say work the kind of jobs where they could take classes during the day work at night or vice versa maybe take night classes you know put themselves through in some other capacity uh the these things did happen but the majority of people at colleges before this point were people who had money their parents were professionals or business people or rich people in some capacity and were able to send them through college was not an everybody thing until you got to Roughly the 1960s, and I even hesitate to say there, that's maybe the tipping point where, because in the 1960s, it was not unusual to find people who weren't going to college and were saying they weren't going to college. Sure. That was not, that was not a strange thing, but you finally had a significantly large amount of the population going. Again, a lot of that came down to the GI Bill, and I think that student loans kind of came up as a way to fill that gap for people who maybe didn't have that, you know, after who, who you know, the draft, when the draft was no longer a thing, cons- you know, the, the GI bill numbers dwindled a lot. Then didn't completely, but, but there was a lot less money coming in from GIs. Student loans filled that gap, I think for a lot of people, but the point was always that student loans were originally supposed to be a supplement for other things that's what they were for me in undergrad you know i i went to a very pricey private college uh i can say now that might have been a bad call i probably could have you know if i weren't such a snotty little asshole at 18 (laughs) who who insisted on going to this place when i could have gone to a state school and gotten arguably the same kind of education and certainly a degree that was worth the same amount uh, for significantly less, uh, I know of at least two people in my family who went to state schools and are a little bit older than me and managed to graduate with very comparatively very little in student debt. And they're paid off at this point. You know, I know someone five years older than me who went to a state Florida school, had some scholarships, some student loans, graduated with like five grand in student loan debt and is paid off now and has been for a while. But that person who's only five years older than me is kind of the last of that generational grouping that I can think of. You're right. When I think of the people our age, 
you know, I'm 29. I graduated college in 2011. Most of the people I know from that bracket, most of the people I went to graduate school with, all of us were like, oh yeah, no, we're just swimming in graduate. We're swimming in undergrad debt. And we're going back to graduate school and taking on more debt because I don't know what else to do. Yeah, I will say uh, just a, a, a trend that I have noticed myself between the people who only got an undergrad degree and the people who have gotten the master's, I will say, and this is not backed up by any statistical data, just my own observation, the people that got master's degrees at the very least wound up in positions and got jobs and that master's degree did lend enough experience or even just clout to make paying off those increased debts seem more manageable than the people who only got undergrad degrees. And here's the thing. Okay, go, yeah, uh, go ahead. Uh, no, no, please. I interrupted you. Go ahead. Well, I was going to I was going to go into a whole different subtopic, so if you <laughs> Um, okay, uh, just just real quick on that, what you just said. That's assuming you stay in your field. Exactly, right. You know, like, I like I didn't. I was, I was an English major in undergrad. And I, and I remember debating this before I went to graduate school. I was sitting here going like, okay, I can go the academic route or I can go the creative route. Uh, an MFA in creative writing is a terminal degree. There are a handful of PhD in creative writing programs but they are not considered industry standard mf and mfa what i have is a terminal degree uh, a master's in english the academic route is not you're kind of expected to go get your phd after that and ultimately my decision was kind of all right i will apply for mfa programs if i don't get in anywhere the following year i'll apply for ma programs managed to get into one school for my mfa and i went and and I got my MFA, and it's 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 a lovely it's a lovely thing. But I don't work in that field, you know. I came out of my MFA and was like, all right. Arguably, I have an arts degree. The thing everyone tells you when you have an arts degree is go teach, because the days of being a professional writer, as in someone who makes their living from creative writing, are pretty much nil. Like, maybe there are some... Most of the people who are creative writers as a career and don't teach or don't supplement with other work are independently wealthy through other means. They either had money or they married money or they just, just somehow have other, other ways of supporting themselves. That allow so that writing doesn't have to be their primary way to eat. I didn't have that. So after I graduated, like I got a shitty job some at a doing customer service for like a few months while I looked for something, anything better. And I fell ass backwards into what I'm doing now. Like I, I work for a government agency. And I like it a lot. But I don't use any of this quote-unquote like qualifications I have, other than the fact that having an English degree is incredibly versatile. But the thing is, nobody asked me for that either. Like, 
they were the only requirement I had starting at my job was uh, having a bachelor's. I don't even know if I needed to have a bachelor's. They might have been like with an AA, I probably would have been fine. But from there, I kind of just took that gig. And then I changed to another department. And then I got a promotion. And that's just kind of been my, my, my spot for right now. Sure. But, and, and, and I was talking to you about this earlier on a different topic, just when we were chatting. But, you know, for a lot of us, it, it, that kind of success, career-wise, not everyone, but it doesn't come from chasing down that path that you selected when you were 18. How stupid were you when you were 18, Andy? Because yeah, I was pretty, pretty stupid. stupid. Um, yeah. Um, for a lot of us, it doesn't come from chasing that. It comes from finding other opportunities when they come up. It was chasing certain things that kind of put us, put us in the place where we felt like student loans were viable and smart. Like I thought it was real smart to take out my student loans when I, when I took them out again, stupid 18 year old. But well, like, more than more than just stupid eighteen year old, I feel like societal pressure, and and yeah, it, it started post World War II, and it, and it really picked up. I feel like um, post Vietnam, like society went into this mindset where you go to college, you go to college, yeah. you get your degree. You're not going to prosper without it. And to the point where, like, it, it swung to the point where it's like, oh, you're going to trade school to be a welder? Okay. Meanwhile, that guy going to trade school to be a welder is financially better off than any of us. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Like, I, I, know, I know somebody who has been talking about going to go, I, I guess someone in their family made their living like as an elevator repair technician which seems hella specific but apparently they did so well at being an elevator repair technician they were able to buy more than one house and raise a family of like securely raise a family granted on two incomes it's not like their partner didn't work but comfortably raise a family of like three kids like and they're well they, they did great and so they're talking about doing something similar. I know, you know, I, my best friend, college didn't work for him. College did not, he was trying to work full time at the same time and it didn't really work. And he later went back and got a nursing degree. And I'm honestly never been more confident in his life since he started this because he's taken it more seriously. It's, got, it's been the kind of thing that's gripped him. In a way that, you know, the the regular college route, the thing that we had talked about doing when we were 18, didn't. And, you know, it it's worked for him. And it's this weird alternative path. That's the thing. It's like this idea that we're not... Did you have the thing, Andy, growing up that was like your parents told you, you're going to college. There's not an if you're going to college. There's not a oh, maybe you can take a year off and work. There's not, there's not an anything. You finish, you finish high school, you go to college. Did you have that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, at the time it was, um, it, it was more framed as you're going to be an actor, but you're going to be an actor who gets a degree in it through college. Yeah, there, I mean, there was just never, and not even like in an oppressive way. I didn't think to even 
go against this, but there was just never any question that I would be going to college. Yeah. Same thing for me. And honestly, my parents weren't a, I wouldn't use the term oppressive at all. It was like, my parents were sitting here going like, we don't care that much what you study, but you're going to college. We don't care what college you go to, but you're going to college. Okay. You want to go to NYU? We care a little bit. That's a little pricey. Can you, can you keep it in state? But like the rest of it, like my parents were very supportive of my very, very silly decision to go to a very expensive, to a college that literally costs as much as Harvard. You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? Literally. Um, They were very supportive of that. And they let me move forward with it. They helped me. Um, I lived at home through college. I graduated early specifically so that I could get out with a little bit of, with a little bit less debt with a little bit less wearing on them. Like, I... These were decisions that I had made, but it was never a question of, you will go to college. Yeah. And, I, and I was happy to go to college. I like school. I still like school. Like, if I go back for my doctorate, it's mostly going to be because I like school. Sure. <laughs> um, but, but I went into debt for undergrad. I went into debt for my master's. Uh, I'm not... If, if I do get my doctorate, I'm not going to go into debt for it. Like... If it's a choice between go get your doctorate and have to pay for it or no doctorate and just stick with what you're doing, I'm going to stick with, with what I'm doing because you're not wrong. Like, between my debt and my partner's debt, like, our lives are impacted yeah. by this. Like, we collectively have enough debt that we have to sit here and go, all right, we're almost 30. Um all and this number hangs over every decision we make you know we're th- we're talking we're recording this in january uh our lease at our current place is up uh in april and we're talking about moving and we have explored multiple options we're like okay we could stay where we are we're doing you know the year of pros and cons here We've been talking about possibly buying a house because we're, you know, decently settled where we are. We like the area. We like our jobs. But every conversation, we like, we, we took a class on home ownership. And the whole time, like, we're sitting there, sitting next to people. Like, there's a single mom over there. There's a young professional couple over there. There's another couple over there where one of them works, the other has health problems, so they can't work. This one has three kids. This one has no kids. This is a single guy just wanting to buy a house. This is a retiree. All these people in different situations. And our albatross around the neck, the thing that we kept needing to ask questions about is this is our student loan debt. We have beautiful credit scores. We have decent jobs. Our savings are affected by the student loans, but, you know, they exist. We're working on it, but... That's a thing that will that hangs over us and will continue to hang over us into our forties. I mean, basically, uh, well, we're, like it it drags you down and it's demoralizing. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm I'm in a similar situation. My partner and I, my wife and I, both have student loan debt. We we took a, a hard look at at just mine the other day. And started looking at how much is this going to raise? When is this going to raise by? And 
it's it 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 becomes hard questions and like again i don't know i don't know anyone who you would classify as a millennial or younger who either doesn't have just major student loan debt or in the case of my sister has decided to completely forsake state college or private college my sister uh, my parents were very supportive of her artistic talent she's she's a, a brilliant artist in her own right she was going to go to fsu to get an art therapy degree and for a number of reasons decided that she didn't want to do that and one of the major factors was i don't want to go live in tallahassee and rack up all this debt instead i want to go to a trade school in orlando and learn how to weld because she's just so mm-hmm. terrified at these insane scary numbers you know i look at my field i'm in the um i'm in video television video production and it, it, depending on where you are depending on on your situation that can be a very lucrative field but that can also be a bit of a struggle bus and I can recall being on set at Universal Studios, and I'm a production... This this was right after my internship. I was a production assistant, and talking to a couple other production assistants, and it's like, okay, well, I went to a state school and got a degree there. You went to Full Sail. You went to the insanely expensive private school. You went to Valencia... You didn't go to school at all. You just knew somebody and the four of us are sitting here as production assistants all making the same amount. And here we are like, like, like we, we started joking about how at the end of the day, you really don't need a degree to do what I do. I think I can handle it. I went to Wharton. Well, I went to Harvard and I went to juvie and we're all here wearing an apron. (laughs) As much as you need the connections. And, and yeah, to preface sure. it, like, I'm in the arts. You're, would you consider English the arts? I, th- I think it's on the fence. Uh, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the humanities. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm in the arts, you're in the humanities. For people who are in the sciences, for people who are engineers, and going through these programs and, and getting jobs in those fields, it's a completely different situation. But like you brought up a good point there like what about all the people who went to school, got a degree, uh to use a, an example, I know somebody who got a law degree and now she works in a call center for Bank of America, not using that law degree at all. And it's such it's such a multifaceted. I want I want to wrap up, but like I I sit here and my hate was on the student loan crisis, the impending student loan crisis. And I, I sit here and I don't actually know what to channel my hate through. It's such a multifaceted issue. I, I, I Sure, I can absolutely hate the old white people responsible for raising the debt 160%. And I do hate them. <laughs> but, like, there's there's the, the, the cultural zeitgeist of you go to college there is the fact that my situation is specific in that i have an arts degree and looking at it with 2020 hindsight i could have gotten exactly where i am by going to community college racking up zero debt and just 
knowing the right people. You know, it's it's and 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 I want to wrap up, but here here's something I want to bring up that just enrages me. <laughs> We're sitting here in the U.S. of A. where debt is skyrocketing and student financial debt is skyrocketing. You can go to Europe tomorrow. You can go to Germany, Iceland, Finland, or certain parts of Sweden, and college is free. Their state schools are free. So, to be clear, youth of America listening, hello, hi there. You, it, 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 is, it is in the long term cheaper to move to Europe and study there than it is to go to the state school that is closest to you unless you are financially well enough that you're not going to wind up with student loan debt. And that is a problem. That is something that is fundamentally messed up about this entire process right now. And and yeah, that 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 makes my blood boil. I hate that. No, I get it. I you're right. We you started this conversation about student loan debt, and I feel like as much as we've talked about student loan debt, we've also just talked about you know American attitudes towards college education yeah. in general. And a lot of that comes from a lot of different directions, um, a lot of cultural a lot of cultural directions, a lot of money making directions. Let's be fair. College is very big business. When I taught community college, you know, our enrollment numbers were constantly down because kids just, you know, it, it was community college. It was specifically local people who, for one reason or another, were choosing to come here. Some of them choosing it because it was cheaper. Some of them choosing it because they didn't have other options. And our enrollment numbers were constantly down, I think largely because people didn't see it a worthwhile investment. Which, you know, as a humanities person makes me sad because I never looked at college as training for jobs. I looked at college as bettering myself as a person. I think that's the this European model. Like, college isn't about, like, at least superficially, it's about training you for a career path. Yeah. The biggest benefits of college, though, are networking, are learning how to exist in an environment with other people of more varied backgrounds, it's expansion of your it's expansion of your mind and your exposure to ideas and teaching you different ways to think and figuring out what works for you like I, I, i've never subscribed to the whole college is a time for experimentation man no college is a time to learn who the fuck you are because your family your church your community you grew up in your all these things have for 18 years given you one concept of the world. College is where you learn that that one concept of the world is exceedingly finite. That's always been its biggest advantage. And I think that European model is investing in that conceit. Yeah. Whereas in the US, as we are wont to do, it is, no, this is a money-making venture that you will go into because without it, it's going to be harder for you to make more money in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. That's fucked up. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think in a first I'm I'm leaving this 
portion of our show just a little more depressed yeah yeah (laughs) i mean sweet listeners we have now taken you into the journey of despair (laughs) that is this particular topic uh we've always talked about uh the hates as being something that we feel the world would be better if this one thing were eradicated and that's always been the angle we've taken and we still have that angle with this i think but we're just a little sadder that we there's no out that's really what it is like in the past i think we've diagnosed issues and even though we're screaming into the ether and probably none of our solutions will ever come to be at least we could come up with solutions and this is one that <laughs> i just i don't know until until we go mad max world and there is some sort of apocalyptic event and and the it gets to the point where untangible money that you theoretically owe just doesn't become a facet of your life worth being concerned about. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! Yeah. Which now that I think about that's a that that'd be a, a fun bit. Do the Mad Max universe, but people are still worried about student loan debt. Anyway, uh, we've gone a long time, and now that you're good and depressed, let's get into our question because this is this is a With, sad one. Yeah, you want to read it or shall I? Uh, you go ahead, man. Okay. Hi guys, I've got a bit of a dark one for you. God damn it! <laughs> We're so um, emotionally ready for this. <laughs> yeah. A little less than a year ago, my grandma died kind of suddenly. She had a fall that turned into some injuries that took a turn for the worst all in a matter of days. This left her husband, my grandpa, the only remaining grandparent I have left. My other two died before I ever knew them. Before my grandma died, I had a pretty breezy relationship with both of my grandparents. They lived decently close when we were growing up, so we visited them on the regular. And they were your stereotypical spoil-your-grandkids types. Now, though, my grandpa's gotten really sullen and mean. We've all been mourning my grandma, but his response seems to entirely be insulting. Uh, I guess that's to be entirely insulting and cruel to everybody around him. My kind of quiet, usually sweet grandpa now swears at me and my parents, calls us shitty, yells that we never do anything right around him, and complains that we're all stupid and lazy. My parents just let him say what he wants, but every time I see him now, I I leave wanting to cry. Is there anything I can do to try and get back to something like normal? Signed, Charlie Bucket. Aw, Charlie. For you? I had to test you, Charlie, and you passed the test. You won! Which is a Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory reference. It is. That's, so, so, thank you, Charlie, for uh, giving us a call sign. I feel like that one is remarkably fitting in this instance. I, I want to start uh, off by you know i i know it's been a little while but i'm 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 very sorry about your grandmother's passing you have my condolences and alex's mine too mine too yep i i I, in answering this i think about my own relationships with my grandparents Uh, my mother's father died before i was born and the other three of my grandparents are still alive so i have my dad's parents and my mom's mom and I think about, so my, my mom's mom, she lost her husband 27 years ago. And there is 
grief, I, I feel like, is different when it comes to that. Losing, losing your husband, losing your partner is never easy, but there's a difference between losing your partner at 63 versus if I, I think about my uh, my dad's parents they're both on the wrong side of 85 there's a difference between losing your partner at 63 or losing them at 85 and I, I, I wish I knew how old your grandfather was because I, I feel like that would be a little more diagnosable here but no matter how old you're, I think we can. I think we can assume like they have to be on a, on you know the farther end of elderly. If one of them could die because of a fall, sure, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's that's that. I feel like if a sixty, if a healthy sixty-three-year-old falls, they might get hurt, but it usually doesn't result in death. Maybe that's assumptive, but right. And and I want to say no matter no matter what age you are losing your partner isn't easy i see the situation you're describing and it's blatantly obvious your grandfather is horribly depressed and not over the loss of his wife this person that he has had for the lion's share of his life this person that he's come to depend on and i i do think that that's harder the older you get not to be morbid but i think about my dad's parents and i think about if if one of them passes before the other honestly i you hear you hear about people uh losing their spouse and and dying themselves shortly afterwards just because there's 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 such a dependency there there's such a well, I don't know what to do now with my life. My my this person who has been such a part of my life is gone. Is there something I can try to do to get back to something like normal? It's hard. It's 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 certainly this is one of the harder questions I think we've gotten because you want to treat your your grandfather this person that you have enough good memories of that you have associated them with the grandfather and Willy Wonka, um, you know, treat them with love and care and they're not treating you with that right now. That's hard. I wonder if trying to mourn with them would be helpful. Obviously your entire family is mourned, but you know, you say your grandfather lives kind of close, and right now he's putting up this this shell of anger and pain and loss and sorrow. And the way to get to normal is to get through that shell and help him get to the emotional weight that he is right now suffering in silence, or at least at least if not suffering in silence, he's not done suffering over. And I think the only, the only way out is through here. If that's even possible, everyone mourns in a different way. I think that's a good start. Um, Charlie, I don't want to be pessimistic here, but I 
think that it might be worth prepping yourself for whatever may come. Andy, you touched on this. It is a known phenomenon that people of, especially people of advanced age, when they lose a partner, are more likely to go themselves, usually, uh, statistically, within the first year. Yeah, right. Uh, And this is more common with men who lose their wives. The prevalent theory is that when women lose their husbands, for various reasons, including the way that women and men are socialized differently in our society, especially in older generations, women have more of an emotional community a lot of the time than men who kind of rely on their wives to be their emotional support. Uh, this is that's by no means a definitive thing. It's not a this happens in every single case. It's just a statistically observed phenomenon. I and 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 Andy's right. We don't know how old your grandparents, your your grandfather is, or your grandmother was. Uh, I'm inferring this as they're probably on you know on the older side. But even if they are younger. I think it would be a really great thing for you to try and connect with your grandfather in a way wherein the two of you can mourn together. Whether that's something as simple as you showing up, maybe in absentia of your parents, uh, maybe just you reaching out, uh, or maybe this is you just sitting in silence with him, maybe trying to call or reach out to him via some more distance-making means, whatever you're comfortable doing, but trying to make those contacts. But there's two issues there. One is, if he makes you cry, if he makes you feel like you want to cry at this point, like, I don't want you to damage yourself over this. You're You're going through something too here. That's not to discount your grandfather's grief, but you have your own grief, and you have your own problems. And having somebody hurl abuse at you and letting that dig into you is going to help no one. So on the one hand, I caution you to safeguard your own well-being as you try to make these connections. You clearly want to make these connections. You want something close to normal. You're talking to our asses about it. Like You clearly want to make some kind of motion here, but please, number one, safeguard yourself. Okay, like nobody should have to suffer abuse. Part number two is when you make that connection, when you do when you do that, when you try to reach out and and I think it will come down to either reaching out or time could be with the passing of time. He gets back to something close to normal himself, maybe if this doesn't take him which is another thing I want you to be prepared for. Like, it is, it is possible your grandfather could be so affected by this loss that he will never be the same again. This shit doesn't happen like it does in the movies. It's not, you know, you can throw, you can shoot a letter through a, you can fold a letter into a paper airplane, throw it through a window so it's in his lap when he wakes up from his nap. He opens it up and you're just saying hi. Like, that's a really cute moment. In a lifetime movie, shit doesn't work that way. 
people dealing with that kind of darkness, sometimes they don't come back from it, especially, especially if they're very advanced in age and they've had, then they've lost the person who was their emotional center for probably most of that time. You know, I'm assuming your grandfather was probably with your grandmother for the majority of both their lives. And he might never get over this. And I think that while you should absolutely try to reach out in whatever way you safely can, I think you should prepare yourself. I think you should prepare yourself for the possibility that A, he might never get over this. He might literally take this to his grave. I know that's a dark thing to say to you while you're mourning your grandmother, but you're asking us for our opinions. And I think that it is entirely possible that your grandfather will die himself without getting over this. And if you take that personally, if you walk through the rest of your life with that in your heart and you can't forgive him after he passes away, you can't cotton to the thought, you can't live with the notion that the good memories you had growing up and the bad memories you have now at this point in your life, I don't even know how old you are, Charlie, that those two can't exist simultaneously and that the latter has to ruin the other. If you, if you think like that, you're only going to hurt yourself. So I think that you should absolutely reach out. Try and visit with him. If he's tremendously abusive, don't be afraid to leave, but don't leave without saying I love you. That's not to say you literally need to look your grandfather in the eye and say I love you, but at least in some way, try and find some way so that you leave in a way that he at least can hear that you're trying and you care. Try and reach out, try and make those connections, try and spend time with him, but be prepared for it not to work. Yeah. I don't know if you've done this already, Charlie, but in in going with what Alex is talking about, if you haven't yet, make it clear that you are hurting too. And maybe a way to help your grandfather and help yourself get back to the sense of normalcy is to make it clear I miss her too. And if nothing else, if this hasn't already happened, you two can share the commiseration on a more private level. And maybe that helps remind him of the other good parts of your relationship. We wish you the best, Charlie. This is, this is, like I said, this is one of the harder ones I feel like. And we hope that we, we we hope that this goes more lifetime movie than not. We hope that <laughs> I mean seriously. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, hope you want your your relationship with your grandfather repairs itself. You want something close to normal. I will just say to you that I hope I, I don't know that normal can be attained, but I hope you find a new normal and a new normal that you both can live with. Please write in to tell us how it goes again. Like, we we would love to hear from you. This, yeah, you're right, Andy. I think this is the hardest question we have 
gotten yet on this show. And um, I want to thank you, Charlie, for sending it in. Uh, we wish you the best. Absolutely. Same. Absolutely. So this has been Love Hate Relationship. This has been a little bit of a of a heavier one than normal. I, I hope you really I hope the base discussion really picked you up before. No, we, we didn't really debate basis now that I realize. I was just like, I like John Deacon, you're like, I like Getty Lee. But I don't want to run this episode yeah. any longer than it already is. We'll go we'll go fight <laughs> off the air about it. Okay, that's fine. If, if you yeah. if if you have a relationship question, even a hard one, even something like this, we are more than happy to help you through it and give our advice on the air. Um, you know, and and it can be it can be about a loved one, it can be about trying to deal with loss, but it can also be you know work related or pet related or 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 anything that is a relationship question. We are happy to help it. I want your pet questions. <laughs> I think you're just going to keep saying that until we actually get one. So send yeah. in a pet question is, is, I guess, the answer there. Um, <laughs> and you can send in those questions, pet-related or otherwise, to lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com, where we promise we'll read them. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even tune in radio. Hey, Mom. Um, I cursed a little bit less this episode, so I hope that you're happy. You did. Um Yes, I did. You you all should be proud of me in lavish praise. Uh, you can also tweet us with said praise at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. With your questions, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. That's right. And and please, we've, we've really done a bad job of trying to rep this, but like and subscribe. Give us a rating. Uh, even if it's, if, if it's a negative rating, DM us, and, and we'll work through our issues. But... Uh, we're really trying to make 2019 be the year this podcast takes off. And one of the ways you can help do that is by leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice. Straight um, up. You can follow me, Andy Bowell, on Twitter at JovoCop2113. That's J-O-V-O-C-O-P and the numbers 2113. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening, everybody, to this very heavy episode. Um, And more than ever, please tell your enemies.